You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. There are now 13 people in hospital here with COVID-19 infection after seven new cases were confirmed last night. Six are located in the east of the country, six in the western part of the country and one in the south confirmed at Cork University Hospital. Authorities have been unable to explain how the patient in Cork contracted the virus, making it the first so-called community transmission of the disease in Ireland. Another patient in the west is a health professional and extensive contract tracing is underway. TCD is closing a section of its city centre campus because of a connection to one of the cases. The Thonishta has been discussing what he called the big jump in coronavirus cases here. Simon Coveney was speaking to reporters in Croatia ahead of a meeting there this morning of the European Union Foreign Affairs Council. Well, look, there is an awful lot happening uh, in relation to the spread of this virus already within countries and and collectively across the European Union. I mean, we have 13 cases now in Ireland, seven more cases yesterday, which was a a big jump in one day. Uh, And I think we need to be clear in our messaging to our own people. Uh, that, uh, uh, that people need to protect themselves, they need to protect their community, they need to act with common sense, they need to wash their hands more. Uh, if they're feeling sick or have symptoms that could be worrying, they need to contact their doctor straight away. Uh, they need to listen to uh, health bodies in their own countries, uh, in my case to the HSE in Ireland, uh, and, um, uh, and not necessarily listen to rumours on social media uh, that often uh, is inaccurate. Um, uh, so a lot of this is, is about sensible management and communication uh, and uh, European countries will of course talk to each other to make sure that if we can do anything collectively uh, as a union to more effectively slow down or stop the spread of this virus that we'll do that. Simon Coveney there saying to listen to the HSE and we're going to do that now because Liam Woods, the National Director of Acute Operations with the HSE is here with us. Good morning. Liam, could you explain to us first, what is it that makes this court case different from the other 12? Good morning, Carolyn. And yes, uh, I think as was referred to in one of your earlier reports today, it's a case identified as community transmission, um, as against uh, transmission associated with travel from overseas. So it's it's a single case, but it is different in terms of its origin. So that's a matter of concern. So there's really three ways that you can pick this up. You've travelled, you've picked it up while you were away. Local transmission, you got it from somebody who was away. And now this third one, community transmission, you got it not having been away or seemingly been in contact with somebody who was. So it is circulating something we would have hoped to prevent but at the same time this has happened in other countries. Yes indeed and of course contact tracing will continue through our public health department to uh, confirm that but it does appear to be the first case of community transmission and yes the three categories you described are are correct. What is the latest on Cork University Hospital's response to this? There was a risk assessment to be carried out. Has that been done? Yes so all hospitals have in place Um, emergency plans and and actually always do and they escalate as they need to in terms of providing safe service to the public. So in Cork at the moment uh, statements have been issued overnight and indeed patients have been contacted because there is significant curtailment of elective procedures, outpatient appointments have been cancelled and they're creating capacity both uh, to treat any patients that may need treatment associated with um, COVID-19 but also to continue essential services. Have all staff and patients who may have been in contact with the patient in Cork 
been identified yet. Yeah, so the contact tracing in Cork has been completed, yes, and that's um, uh, our public health department engaged in that. So that work is done. And have other people been put into self-isolation as a result of that contact tracing? Yes, so the the procedure is is clear. So um, any person who is a contact is asked to uh, voluntarily self-isolate and that has happened. Now, every positive case so far has been treated in hospital. But can we keep this up? Could positive cases end up being treated at home because of capacity issues and because of the knock-on impact on the services that the Mm. hospital is there to provide? Yeah, I think at this stage, Carol, while we're in the containment phase, uh, isolating um, people uh, in hospital is an effective way of containing. That is the uh, position as adopted by the ECDC, the European Centre of Disease Control. So should the number, and at the moment that relates to 13 uh, individual cases, should those numbers grow, then the position would be reviewed because um, it's also, of course, we're aware that the majority of people can actually manage this condition at home. But we will be guided there by public health advice and international advice. And just tell us about our intensive care capacity. The 13 people who are in hospital, they're not necessarily in ICU. They're in isolation or under infection control. But as this develops... Tell us more about our intensive care capacity. So uh, we have a a national intensive care capacity across the country of 220 uh, beds. That's growing at the moment by a further 25 beds. And that is used for treatment of people who are ill. And as you rightly say, um, most patients in the country at the moment with this condition are not in that uh, space. So from our point of view, uh, our capacity, uh, which is, as you would be aware, over winter can be challenged associated with flu and other infections. So most of those beds are probably already occupied. What happens if if more are needed? So the rate of occupation in our ICU beds is high. A recent report by NOCA, the National Office of Clinical Audit, would would highlight that. Uh, In the event of needing capacity for this purpose, then we're looking at the kind of measures I referred to earlier, which would be, for example, curtailment of surgery, um, elective surgery, that will create capacity in our ICUs. It's not something we want to do and it's something we will have to review really case by case over time. The head of the HSE said yesterday that the winter beds that were added uh, this winter, they're going to be extended to help ease that pressure. um, is that going to be enough? Yeah, so there were over 200 beds added additionally this winter. And of course, on any day, there are 11,000 people uh, receiving inpatient care in hospitals in Ireland. So the question of sufficiency, I think we're going to have to work through this over time. Our contingency planning is about making sure that we have adequate space to provide the essential services that are currently provided, but also deal with uh, this outbreak of viral infection. The, the challenge really, I think the answer will only become known over time, but our contingency measures are in place and will be uh, will enable us to respond for quite some period of time. Now, we say we're still in the containment phase, but Paul Reid saying yesterday that it will be a challenge to maintain this. This suggests mm. that we could be about to move mm. to another phase. What will that involve? Yeah. So I, I think if there was a movement to a, what's referred to as a mitigation phase, then I think that is uh, based on an acceptance that there is a wider community transmission. And in, in that event, I, I expect what we will see is more cases in our hospitals Uh, But we will also see probably more people at home with the condition that they are able to manage at home.
Now, in terms of messaging, we hear on the one hand that the HSE is, quote, Mm. not alarmed, but on the other hand that this is, quote, a rapidly evolving situation. People will worry. What can they Mm. do? Yes, I heard your earlier contribution from Age Action on this, and I think it's important to point out there is currently a helpline. Uh, So there is a phone number, which is 1850 1850. And we can uh, clearly, if you well, I was going to say, if you can put that on your website, will be helpful. We will. Um, And the, the opening hours for that, just for public, are 8 to 8 Monday to Friday and 10 to 5 on the weekends and we're examining that in terms of load. If I could make one other observation Carol, the the 999-112 service is also receiving calls for information and we would ask the public very much to target their calls for information to that 1850-24-1850 line because of course we must maintain the 999 service for urgent and emergency calls. Okay, so that's one eight fifty twenty four one eight fifty. That's yeah. who you should be calling if you want information right. from the HSE. And now, we have, uh, I should add, live chat online for people who access online and a lot do. The HSE also announced a new policy last night for healthcare workers returning from an affected area because there still could be people mm. coming back from holidays. And this is the, in the light of the case in the mm. west of the country where a medical professional uh, is involved. Tell us more about this. So the, the the advice will evolve, I think, as the as the situation changes. And yes, you're right in saying that the the position as of now is that um, healthcare workers returning from areas of concern will be asked to voluntarily self isolate for 14 days, and that's the position as of uh, middle of this week. Now, Paul Reid said that 20 million euro has been spent on equipment, uh, mm-hmm. ventilators and extra protective gear for doctors. Is this something, this procurement that you have to keep an eye on? How mm-hmm. far down mm-hmm. the road are you looking mm-hmm. when, we, when we're talking yeah. about this? So in terms of procurement and supplies, the HSE has a, a group looking at procurement of all uh, essential equipment and supplies. And there are measures in place already, including stocking up of certain essential supplies. So that will be something that, again, we will monitor over time. But right now, we have measures in place to address um, making sure that our hospitals and community services have the uh, equipment that they need to do their job. And we know that teams are meeting today to discuss the whole issue of mass gatherings. When can we expect to hear some news on that? So I think the the, um, the the policy on mass gatherings and its implementation will will affect be a continuous piece of work because there are many gatherings over time in in our society. So uh, I think later today there is a, a meeting of uh, NEFET, what's referred to as the, the National Public Health Emergency Team, and any guidance would emerge from there. Do you expect that mass gatherings will be curtailed or that there'll be new advice for people? Well, the policy will create the criteria that uh, allow for those decisions to be made. I can't art, uh, articulate individually any, any particular one, but the policy is directed at that and it very much be case by case associated with the uh, health risks. OK, and just as a final question, I know you can't talk about individual cases, mm. but overall, how are the patients doing that are in hospital? Uh, so, uh, yes, I, I think you rightly say, Carol, it would be inappropriate for me to talk about individual cases, but I think what I, what I would point to is that um, the majority of people who acquire this condition will be relatively well able to cope with it in their home environment. OK. Liam Woods, National Director of Acute Operations with the HSE. <laughs> Well, we are here in County Limerick this morning. We're broadcasting from the Castle Oaks House Hotel in Castle Connell, which is on the border with County Clare. And to just give you a sense of the geography of where we are this morning, we are... We are on the banks of the River Shannon. To the north of us is the Partine Weir and to the southwest is the Ardna Crusher Power Plant. And it is the very existence of both of these structures which is 
causing great anguish and great stress for dozens of people living in this region. The ESB periodically increases the flow of water to maintain the Partine Weir. But the knock-on effect is extensive flooding, which has destroyed people's homes and lands. Just across the border in County Clare are Springfield and Clonlara, two places which have seen families having to leave their homes. Everything they've created and work for has been ruined by floods. Our reporter, Angus Cox, spent yesterday with Clare Civil Defence. They all went out in their all-terrain Unimog vehicle on roads which looked more like rivers and bricks and mortar formed almost no barrier to the torrential flooding. We've been trying to get down a couple of times just to get new clothes and stuff, you know, um, for the kids, because there's four of us, four kids. Mike and Liz Hogan and their four children have been out of their home in Springfield since the 21st of February and today is their first chance to gain access and see how far the floodwaters have crept up their drive and towards their home. We're, we're staying in the Castle Oaks at the moment um, so we get across and, and the guys bring us down because once we get closer to our area it's, it's impassable unless we're in the truck. You know? So your only way in and out is it on the Civil Defence's monster truck at the moment? Yeah, we remember from the last time we came, we came out and, and they brought us on the boat. It was that high, they, could, they, they couldn't even bring this. I knew countryside growing up. So we came out here for a countryside life for our children. And this is their legacy that we have to leave. This house is worth nothing. You can't sell it like, I mean, if we go in the morning, this is supposed to be left for them. What, what do they have? Ma'am, have you a key? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It'd be very bad if you didn't bring a key. Nice. Like we really rushed around the place, and that's what we had to do. So extra clothes for the kids, um, and do stuff like that, and get rid of my roses that I got for Valentine's Day because <laughs> they're there rotten. I didn't even get to see them. <laughs> so I have to take stuff like that out of the house and get rid of all that. And when will you be back again? We're in the accommodation till next Friday. But I'd say it'd be longer. I can't see this going by next Friday. And the last time, four years ago, you said it was a bit worse. How long did it take to recede? We were out of our house for eight weeks. Everything Mike, what's it like? Is it worse or better than you thought it was going to be after a week away? A bit frightening, to be honest. No, um, we were just afraid. Like, Jesus, we're not sleeping, you know. Um, You'd no idea what you were coming back to. N- no, it's crazy coming back for you know for clothes for the boys going to school for Eva going to school. Another couple being helped out by the civil defence are Shirley and Dave Mulcahy. But this is a daily routine for them because evacuation was not an option. I have a child with autism, ADHD and challenging behaviour among other things like anxiety. We can't evacuate because he would not do well in a strange environment. We tried it actually before didn't work out at all Um, it's just disrupted our lives completely we literally can't get out our driveway we're on this vehicle the lads have been fantastic don't know how we would cope about going out any kind of uh, a bit of our daily lives to our groceries takes the only way we have in and out you're seeing it here yourself now you're coming down in the uni mug with us the body of water that's here and this is just the front side it's also out the back of our houses here as well. You know, I mean, as you can see, like we're so far in from the services and everything to get into us. I mean, yesterday there was a status red weather alert. There was no one here. If anything happened to us yesterday, it would have been the 115 helicopter would have had to come in and collect us, you know.
Noel Carberry, Clare Civil Defence Officer with Clare County Council. Uh, well, what we've been doing for the, the last week and a half or so is that we um, have a, a um, Unimog, which we're using to transport the residents in and out uh, in the mornings, the afternoons. Uh, we also bring in some fuel, food, um, any supplies really that's need. We've set a schedule for more or less we'll be here between 8 o'clock in the morning and 12 o'clock, and the lads take a little break for a bit of lunch and just to relax for a while. We're back then from 2, half 2 until 6 o'clock. And the staff here you have working for you today, well, they're not staff, they're volunteers. Absolutely, every single one of them are volunteers, yeah. yeah. Um, have been absolutely incredible. A lot of the guys are taking their own um, annual leave from work to be here. Um, and, and an absolutely incredible bunch of people. Um, you've spent time with them yourselves, and in fairness, spirits are very good. And, and a, lot of, a lot of what they're doing is, is you know, trying to keep the resident spirits up too. While the great work of the civil defence is certainly keeping spirits up, decades of flooding have taken their toll on the residents of Springfield who fear for the future. We've paid our hard-earned money from our working years for a beautiful home that is now basically a floating prison and that's the way we see it. My child will always need uh, this, he will never live independently. So we worry about when we're not alive anymore, you know, this house was our everything. It's very hard on our children. This is all they know is this water every Christmas and every Christmas. Will we be in our home or will we be out of our home? The very real worries of residents in Springfield, Clonlara in County Clare. That was Angus Cox reporting. It was last orders for locals at a Tipperary pub last night. The Coach Road Inn in Aherlow, which is over 200 years old and dates back to the area of stagecoach and horseback travel, closed its doors for the last time. Our southeast correspondent, Conor Kane, went along. In the picturesque and famous Glen of Aherlow, deep in County Tipperary, the Coach Road Inn has been providing shelter and sustenance to locals and visitors for over 200 years. It dates from the time of Charles Bianconi, the Italian native who established a stagecoach service generally regarded as the first example of public transport in Ireland. Those horse-drawn coaches travelled nearby, hence the name. Margaret O'Brien and her late husband Bernard took over the Coach Road Inn in 1981. We had a pub in England in Hampstead for six years. And then we decided, to, um, we had four, three children at the time, we decided to come home. And we came here in 1981 and opened, well it was opened at the time, Timmy O'Dea um, was here before us. Um, and so we went on for, I'm here 39 years. Now she's calling last orders for the last time. Sad and very sad for the community because it is a very community orientated place and um, wonderful support and great neighbours and all of that. But it is getting so much more difficult to run a place now and overheads, insurance and all of that. Um, so I suppose I'm in my 74th year and I decided it's time to retire. Off the beaten track maybe, so to speak, but it's nevertheless a popular haunt for those looking for beauty in the Galtee Mountains. And this particular hostelry houses many memories for both the retiring owner and her family and also regular customers, such as Joe Donovan. Oh, sure, it was home from home for a lot of people in the locality. I suppose for hundreds of years. If we had, if we had the gates of heaven were shutting, it would be nothing towards this. It was as simple as that for a lot of the people that were coming here and 
over the years and love to come here then. And it's been at the heart of the community in many ways and will be missed by so many, as Helen Morrissey points out. Well, I suppose it's the focal point in the Glen. Um, I've been involved here because I work for the local tourism company, Glen of Arhalo Falter Society. Uh, the O'Brien family have been hugely supportive to us over the years because they've given us a building which we use as a community tourist office. Um, and I suppose for visitors who come to the Glen, it will be a loss. We have two camping and caravan parks in the area. One of them is literally within walking distance of here. Uh, we would have a lot of return visitors who come back a couple of times a year um, and they would all be regulars here in the pub and coach road so it will be a loss, uh, a loss for them. Established as an inn in 1815, the coach road has seen it all during that time and in her almost four decades behind the bar, Margaret O'Brien has been witness to many changes in the business and in local life. It's completely quite different to what when we first took it over. In 1981 we'd be open at 10 o'clock in the morning and you'd have people from that right through the day. Now I open at 6 and I probably might see two people between 6 and 9 and you may not see anybody for until 10 or 11 again. Um, so it's gone really quiet. She will miss it but will remain living here hopefully long after the last pint has been poured, the last half one measured, the last coffee brewed. And that report from Aherlow in County Tipperary from our southeast correspondent, Conor Kane. More than half of Irish adults have taken an illegal drug at some point in their lives. A similar number have also experienced alcohol or drug addiction, whether that's been through a family member, a friend or by experiencing it themselves. However, a survey commissioned by Merchants Key Ireland, the addiction and homeless charity, has found that a stigma still very much exists in Irish society when it comes to addiction. More than 1,200 people took part in the study carried out by Ireland Thinks. Our reporter, Tommy Meskell, visited Merchants Key Ireland to speak to people about their experience of addiction and to learn more about the charity survey. My name is Liam Whelan. Well, my story is I grew up in Crumlin, Dublin 12. I had an adventurous childhood. I was really good at soccer. I was good at boxing. I enjoyed my football more than boxing. 4pm at the Merchants Key drop-in centre. The place is packed as dinners are dished out. 38-year-old Liam sits down with his tea, a donut and a story he's happy to share. I loved getting high. I would have been 16 when I first started taking ecstasy. And um, yeah, I loved it. I loved going into a club and the, the old music, higher and higher and higher and high, all the old songs. The rave scene in the 90s was brilliant. That was an era of great phenomenal music. I was a big nerd. I was overall student of the year and stuff like that. So my stepdad actually paid for me to go to a private school then after junior years. Joanne is homeless and has been an alcoholic for the past 14 years. She was happy to tell her story too, but in a quiet corner of the building. When I was 19, two men raped raped me and they said there wasn't enough forensic evidence so I never sought the help that I needed to then I just started basically trying to numb everything out I think I'm incompatible with reality so since then I've been a daily drinker but in spite of that 
I still managed to like actually get like I've loads of qualifications and I got my first mortgage at 23 and now I'm homeless and the irony of being in emergency like I used to um I used to donate here like a standing order I never thought I'd have to actually use the services myself. Today, Merchants Key are releasing the findings of a survey on public attitudes to drug addiction. Carol Casey is their head of fundraising and communications. Of the people that we surveyed, six out of ten of those people had direct experience of addiction. The direct experience might have been them, they themselves, um, a family member or a close friend. But despite that prevalence of addiction and despite the fact that a very like one of the very promising findings was that 85% of people want to see treatment services available to every drug user who who requires it um, but despite that um, we could still see that there were attitudes there that were quite stigmatising one that really stuck out for me actually was um, that people in recovery are not trustworthy um, another one is that people are too tolerant Irish society is too tolerant of people who use drugs over half of people who were polled said they didn't have any sympathy for people who inject drugs publicly when I saw that statistic I was genuinely really surprised that there's that lack of sympathy and I think that maybe you know is indicative of the fact that we're not really talking about the lived experience of active addiction when you're homeless in this city. On Saturday Merchants Key will open a four-day exhibition called The Lived Experience of Addiction. It will showcase pictures and written stories. The identities of those who took part will be kept anonymous. I suppose getting four and a half years in prison for uh, selling heroin was my low point, the worst point. But in saying that, it was the best thing that ever happened to me at the same time because prison helped me reform my life and helped me to deal and think about things honestly. I only recently got out. I only got out last year. I can see why like, your standard person out there would look at a drug addict and say, man, they're the lowest of the low. But there is genuine drug addicts out there that are just, um, they just want to be high, just want to have a good time. They just don't want to be hurt and they don't want to be suffering and they don't want to be carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders all day. When Joanne shares her story, she finds that it's often met with bewilderment. People don't think you're homeless. Yeah, because they, they judge by appearances and like I hate that because um, just because I don't, uh, or just because I might have like all right clothes and I have a designer handbag and stuff like that. People think I'm actually like I've been accused of being a undercover policewoman and I've been accused of being an investigative journalist. I have a poem actually about drug addiction. Do you want to hear it? Imagine a life without rich or poor. A life that a credit card could never cure. And the misery of the past was all a blur. I think we'd all be happy there and that's for sure. Now I'm sick and tired of the devil saying over and over that I failed and I'll never succeed. I'm sick and tired of the devil saying over and over that this life is just not for me. And that was Liam Whelan ending that report by Tommy Meskell. The Lived Experience of Addiction exhibition will begin on Saturday. It takes place at the Copper House Gallery on Sing Street in Dublin and entry is free. And if you've been affected by this report, contact detail for support services is available at rte.ie forward slash helplines.
We were talking recently about the long-term effects of homelessness on children in Ireland, a study in Limerick University that showed the long-term physical and mental scars that persist into adulthood. There are now 3,574 homeless children in Ireland. That's the latest available figure. It dates from the end of January and it was higher than the previous month. The overall number of people living in emergency accommodation, not including those in direct provision, is 10,271. Eleanor Mannion reports now from a primary school in Blackpool in Cork City who are helping children and families who are homeless. You can see children who who have been bubbly and bright and happy and they bounce in the door in the morning but they bounce back out in the afternoon. And then the thing that would affect us the most that breaks our hearts is when the bounce going out the door is gone. Nikki Egan is describing the effects that being homeless has had on children at her school. She is principal of North Presentation Primary School in Cork City. It is a DESH school with 270 pupils. We've always had children from disadvantaged backgrounds. We have children who aren't from disadvantaged backgrounds, but we've always had the disadvantage here. We've always had children with um, adverse childhood experiences, parts of their lives that aren't ideal. But a couple of years ago, it started to become more and more apparent to us that the homeless crisis was affecting us. And the amount of families in the school who were homeless was increasing. So to a small child, leaving the doors here every afternoon with no idea of where their bed was going to be that night, with no idea of where their things were, where their books were, where their toys were, was just incredibly difficult for them to deal with and then was resonating through the whole school. A 2019 survey by the Irish Primary Principals Network found that one in four primary schools have pupils who are homeless. North Presentation Primary School has had children from up to 12 homeless families attend their school. Nikki Egan came up with practical ways of helping those families. Um, We have a parents' room, and in the parents' room there are two cookers and ovens, There's tea and coffee facilities, it's warm, it's cosy in there. We have a washing machine and a dryer that we use for school purposes. So they can come in if they like. They can use all the cooking utensils here. If they don't have the money for the ingredients, we buy the ingredients for them. And they can cook a meal for their family. And then they can bring it back to their bed and breakfast later on in the day because most of them have microwaves and they can heat it up. So some people are easier, will take the help easier. Some people... I need not so much encouragement, but just to know that it's going to be discreet and it's going to be subtle. So there have been times maybe where we would say, if you don't want to do the washing and drying there, if you don't want other parents to see it, drop it off with us there in a bag in the morning. And when you come back later on, the bag will be back where you left it, but things will be clean and dry. Nikki has also used the training of Cork-based charity Egg Eistucht. The training equips frontline practitioners like teachers with the skills to build relationships with people who are going through a hard time. Dr Maeve Hurley is the founder and CEO of Egeistucht. Schools can make a difference and the school community has the potential to be emotionally and mentally healthy environment for children. And so you might think, well, surely it's about learning to read and write. And yes, but if we really want children to have the best opportunity to learn, then we need to be thinking about how do we set up an environment which sets them up for that. For Nikki Egan, she wants to provide an environment that helps break the cycle. 
it was something that is just critical to us here to for us to build these skills so that we can break a cycle and and we can break a cycle you don't have to be a huge powerful person to make a difference in lives that everybody can make a difference in somebody's life And that report from Blackpool in Cork. That was Nikki Egan, the principal of North Presentation Primary School in Cork, finishing that report from Eleanor Mannion. There's been increasing calls for a return to large-scale developments of social or affordable housing and a ban on private development on public land. The new St Michael's estate in Inchicore in Dublin will have 70% provided as cost rental, cheaper accommodation for working people who don't qualify for social housing. However, there are fears that mistakes of the past may be repeated, as our Dublin correspondent John Kilrain reports. Ballymon Estate is a bold, daring and ambitious attempt to solve a desperate need in the capital city. As news reports from the 1960s show, Ballymon was considered the future of housing when it was built and the solution to the housing crisis of that era. But right from the start, new residents were not so sure. You think it was that you were in America or something when you come into the scheme and see the big skyscrapers. It's just, it lacks something. I, w- I wouldn't like to, to live here for the rest of my life. Others wanted more space for their children. But they're in a double bed, I know, and uh, we have to sleep in the sitting room and a bed settee. They didn't offer me a two-bedroom, but I'd rather wait and get a bigger, not have to, because I want to have a bigger family and I wouldn't like to be moving again, you know. Families did move out and the area became associated with a host of issues, ranging from poor management to crime. Eventually, the flats were demolished. Large estates of social housing were considered a mistake never to be repeated. And mixed tenure housing having private owners living among social and affordable residents became a central plank of rebuilding Ireland. But in recent years, left-wing parties and housing protests have urged a return to council estates as the controversy over the future of O'Devany Gardens shows. Many academics now argue that most social housing was actually successful. Often when people talk about an estate having a bad name, it's nothing to do with the tenancy or the people who live there. Um, Often there's far more complicated social reasons and other economic reasons. Orla Hegarty, assistant professor at UCD School of Architecture, agrees. If you look at Ballymun, one of the big difficulties there was it was a lot of housing without facilities, without the infrastructure, the bus services, the community facilities, and then the buildings weren't repaired and maintained. Um, If you look at some of the other areas, you'll find that over time maybe the work wasn't done on the buildings or they weren't refurbished. St Michael's Estate in Inchicore was built as a follow-up to Ballymun in the 1960s. It also became a disadvantaged area and was demolished. 500 homes will now be built on the site, 30% social and 70% cost rental, none for the private market. Things have come full circle. We're in a situation now where we don't fit in this apartment. Like We would love to grow our family, but there's no space for us to grow our family. Kate O'Connell, her partner Lucas and baby daughter Nasa all live together in a one-bed apartment in Dublin's South City. They say they're stuck because they cannot afford a bigger apartment and would like to get a cost rental home in the new St Michael's estate. 
I think in Ireland we're very attached to the idea of owning bricks and mortar, but I know that like for Lucas's family in Sao Paulo and for lots of other people, it's quite normal that people would rent their homes that they live in. Um, we're not necessarily looking to own a home, what we're looking to have is just security of tenure, a sense that we know how much our rent is going to be and we know that we can stay where, we, where we're living. But local residents at Inchicore, besides St Michael's, remember how it became an area of disadvantage when many working families moved out to buy their own homes. They fear the cost rental scheme will repeat the mistakes of the past. As long-term resident George O'Gorman explains. Cost rental scheme can be a transient uh, people coming and going. So the fear in the community would be that, you know, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years time, uh, what way will it end up? So the fear is you're known going forward because it's a pilot scheme, hasn't been tried on a big scale. What will be the outcome down the road? However, Assistant Chief Executive with Dublin City Council Brendan Kenny says the new St Michael's scheme will be entirely different. The cost rental is not social housing. Cost rental is private housing. It's people who won't qualify for social housing, people above the income limits. We can't compete on the market at the moment. We would be renting in some micro state into the future. So we think it's totally different. I think there'll always be a movement, but I think there's a huge need for a strong, vibrant, sustainable, uh, secure private rental sector in the Dublin area. And even if people do move out, more people move in. And I, I think going forward, there won't be as much emphasis on home ownership as there has been over the last 20 years or so. That was Brendan Kenny, Assistant Chief Executive of Dublin City Council, ending that report by John Kilrain. Well, we've been hearing all morning about the coronavirus. Officials say that we remain in the containment phase, but that we are also in a rapidly evolving situation. Our reporter, Kian McCormack, has been hearing from some members of the public about their anxieties about the virus and how we should deal with them. You know, we've got to remember this is a virus that may well be with us here in Ireland and in Europe for weeks and weeks, if not months and months. So it's about taking a... It is pretty infectious. It's not, it's not like measles and it's not quite as infectious as flu, but it does move quietly. What you want to do is stop person-to-person contact. That is, um, no hugging, stop the handshaking. About 11 or 12 days ago, I think there'd been three cases in Italy and we've seen how that situation has evolved. So we, we can't be complacent, but nor should we be panicked. And I think that is a really important message uh, for the public. We can't be complacent or panicked. That's what the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, was saying this week. And as we hear what's happening or what could happen with the virus, people are going about their everyday business in Dublin city centre. I feel anxious, yeah, it's scary. But I really hope they will find how to cure this very fast. In Dublin city centre, Tatina Sorik from Terenure is walking to college. Just keep thinking about it. We have directly from my town one person got sick. Got coronavirus. Coronavirus. Yeah. Where was that? It's Chernivtsi. It's the west part of Ukraine. And have you been back? I'm not, but I have my uh, relatives. I have my father there, and yeah, and he's older. Ruth. Potherton is the next person walking up the street. Well, don't panic and do what we're told to do. I would be, you know, more hand washing and things like that. 
Her biggest personal consideration is a tennis tournament she's organising at Brookfield Tennis Club in Dartry. Junior Open and we would have children all, from all over Leinster and from other areas in Ireland. And when does that happen? Uh, Holy Week. It's a matter of waiting for advice. Wait for advice, see how things develop. I mean, if they get very bad, then I think we have to think twice. There's a steady stream of people walking up Grafton Street by half past ten in the morning. Near St Stephen's Green, a medical student explains the coronavirus has led to one of her final exams being held seven weeks ahead of time. We had to take some drastic measures to bring up our exams. So they're happening next week now instead of seven weeks' time. The exam is one where students assess patients in a hospital setting. It's a mandatory part of the Royal College of Surgeons medical degree. There are final year exams. Wow. It's the make it or break it time. So your final year exams, which were supposed to happen in almost two months' time, are happening now because of coronavirus? It's just precautions, so we don't expose patients to unnecessary um, infections and all that, so it's for patient safety mainly. The city is busy. Deliveries are being made to shops. Philip Ryan is one of the delivery men. Once we all stay on top of things and clean our hands and more hygiene, I think we'll be okay. And don't be getting all the scare tactics that are involved on social media. You're making... So is there scary stuff on social media? Well, I see my child now. She's 14 nearly, and she's on about it all the time. And it's like as if she's worried. What is she saying to you? Just always talking about it. And this person over the rest of Ireland or the East has got a this and that, you know that way. And I'm thinking, I mean, keep, keep on top of her, keep talking to her. Make her let her know that it's not as scary as it looks. The kind of concerns and anxieties mentioned by delivery man Philip Ryan there are common in this kind of situation, says Dr. Harry Barry. Well, the first thing I think we, we have to do, we have to distinguish be, between what I would call a concern or a healthy anxiety which is a very useful thing for us as a society to have at times like this, and what I would call an unnatural or unhealthy anxiety, where we begin to visualise and catastrophize the worst-case scenario in relation to ourselves and our families. The GP and author, based in County Louth, specialises in positive mental health and anxiety. So, uh, yes, this is a very significant issue. Yes, we all have to take definite precautions. But I think uh, what I worry a little bit about at the moment is that we, we get to a level of hysteria where, uh, firstly, we, we begin to take uh, advice that's maybe not correct advice, number one, but number two, maybe sp- spend an excessive amount of time uh, worrying and catastrophizing about what might happen, uh, whereas the reality of it is that for the vast majority of people, uh, even if this were to become a full-blown epidemic, uh, this this would be uh, a minor illness, and it's only really uh, those vulnerable in our society. And we all have to be very cognizant of those, and we all have to make sure we, we from a public health point of view, do the correct things. But I think as a society, it's very important that we don't end up almost creating as much problems for ourselves uh, from a catastrophizing, catastrophizing point of view uh, uh, as from the condition itself. 
Dr Harry Barry ending that report by Kean McCormack. More information on the coronavirus can be got from hse.ie and 1850 24 1850. And the HSE has confirmed to RTE News that more than 60 staff at Cork University Hospital have been asked to self-isolate following the identification of a case of community transmission at the hospital. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.